Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. Great to see all of you here. We want to turn in our Bibles today to the book of the Revelation. The Revelation chapter 3, and we'll begin our reading in verse 1. We'll read through verse 6. Finally, in this series on churches and Revelation, we get to one that was not in a fight. They weren't fussing. They didn't have persecution going on. They weren't all wrapped around the axle about a bunch of issues and things like that. They didn't have people in the church that they needed to get rid of and and get them out and call them to the carpet. None of that. Finally, a good, just peaceful uh, atmosphere. He says, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God. The Spirit of God, seven is the number for divine completion. So that's the Holy Spirit of God. And the seven stars, that's the messenger to these churches. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Man. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. You may have perfect there. Uh, The word means finished or brought to completion. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes, and they will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. For he who overcomes will, or he who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white, and I will never blot his name from the book of life but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I love my home church to this day. I pray for them regularly. I have a group of women in that church. They don't just pray for me, but... They pray for pastors all over the place, but I'm blessed to be one of them that they lift up in prayer um, uh, on a regular basis. So I love my home church. But I want to tell you, I grew up in an atmosphere of legalism. And when I say legalism, that just simply means uh, in a theological sense that we put a lot of emphasis on what you do and what you don't do, what you should do, and what you shouldn't do. And it became more about the practice rather 
than the person, which is Jesus Christ. And, and, and when you love the practice enough, you kind of get to where you don't love the person like you ought to. Certain measurements that may not have been written down, they were just in place. Now, there are churches that have them written down. But they were just unspoken, but everybody knew there were certain things that, that we just expected. Women were to never wear pants uh, on Sunday. We, we let our hair down and got really liberal there after several years, and women could wear pants on Sunday night. Who knows? What is the rationale of all of that? What is the what is the thinking behind all of that? Someone has said, matter of fact, Samuel uh, Gender, uh, was, he wrote an article for the Washington Post of all papers. He said, if moral behavior was simply following rules, we could program a computer to be moral. We could just tell it to do the right things at the right time, and wouldn't we all love to own one like that? But we could just teach it certain rules and, and we could take artificial intelligence and we could make a machine uh, meet that standard of morality. But it never, ever works when you're trying to worship God. I don't care how legalistic you are, there will always be someone to the left of you and there will believe it or not, always be someone to the right of you. There will be somebody that still won't let women wear pants even on Sunday nights. And then there'll be one below that, or I, I don't know if it's below that or to the right of that or more conservative, that won't, don't, don't want women wearing makeup. I, I, I don't know about you, I just, I just don't want to go to that church, at least not in the mornings. I'm sorry. There are churches still to this day. My brother ran into such a situation with his uh, bluegrass band. They were playing at a church, and they were told, make sure you wear long sleeve shirts. They don't allow men to wear short sleeve dress shirts. I, I don't care how how dogmatic you think you are. I don't care how religious you feel you are. There's always somebody that will, can one-up you. And it becomes about what we do rather than who we serve. But let me tell you this. The pendulum swings both ways. And you and I both know, especially since we started Cornerstone, uh, uh, we, we have seen it. Uh, in, in the 20-something years that we have been together here. The pendulum swings the other way. And, and I can tell you, uh, when it comes down to, to how we do things and what we do, whether we're liberal or conservative, I, I can tell you, when you minimize it to that, it becomes about or intensifies self-effort and then the next thing we do, and, and this is according to the little book we teach around here sometimes, the gospel-centered life. It either becomes about what I do or either I begin to minimize what I don't do well. 
I'll blame it on someone else. I'll, I'll, I'll say it was my upbringing. It was something else. But I try to work really hard. I make it about me. And therefore, I've set myself up for extreme disappointment and compromise. And that's no way to live the gospel-centered life. Miles Lucas wrote the book, The Christian Left, How Liberal Thought Has Hijacked the Church. Pretty strong title, pretty strong book. He said this about the way the pendulum has swung back to the left in recent years. He said, most pastors wrongly concluded, and I believe they had the, most of them had to write hard about it, but most pastors wrongly concluded that they could accomplish a departure from legalism by introducing consumer-driven aspects of the seeker sensitive model they thought make church more well they call it consumer friendly and when you make something more consumer friendly that means you make it more consumable it is easier to digest and the efforts of a lot of, and I'm going to say some were well-meaning, I, I can't speak, I don't know their heart, and I can't judge them uh, whether they were or not. But, but I can tell you, the, the thought was that if we make the gospel more digestible, more consumable, then more people who, uh, will be saved if we, if we just do that. But we really got out of sorts even in that direction. He goes on to say, but instead of maintaining the gospel's core teaching of repentance and forgiveness of sin, Sunday morning services soon summarize the teachings of Jesus simply as feed the hungry, clothe the poor, and accept people who are different than you. For a lot of people, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. This attempt to correct the religiosity and legalistic teaching of the previous generation once again exposed the church to additional injury. Neither way helped the church. So let me ask a question. What are we to do when times change and circumstances change and and I can just tell you, all the answers are going to be in the Word of God. All of them will be in the Word of God. And you might not think that there's such a clear word for us today because now we live in a, this place has changed. It's a lot different than the world in which I grew up in. And it's a, it's a lot different than the world when most of you grew up in. And so I, I can just tell you, we know that. And, and, and the ideas nowadays, they, they're different than anything that uh, a lot of us could have ever imagined. And, and so it, 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 it's one of those deals that we need some guidance from God. What do you do when everything seems so radically different from what you have known? Well, let me read a passage quickly from Joshua chapter 1. In verse 7, Moses has died. God tells Joshua, Moses, my servant is dead. 
you're about to lead these people, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you're about to lead these people into a country like they've never seen. They're going to be around people that do not think like them. They're going to meet people where most of them have never even heard of me, and they certainly don't live like it. They have values that you could not imagine. They do crow grotesque things they do immoral things you've never seen uncleanliness on the level of what you're about to see when you meet those uh, at Jericho and when you meet the Canaanites and the Gergashites and the Hivites and and the vicious vicious Amalekites that would skin people alive when you meet those kinds of people in that promised land as you lead them in He says to Joshua this in verse 7, Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. And do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. That means you speak it. When you see things that don't match up to it, you say it. It's not your job, Joshua, to try to make my law and what I say mesh with what you're going to hear and see in the land in which you live. He says, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. One more verse. Verse 9, have I not commanded you, again, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. I don't do a lot of trembling, but I am often dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Man, for God to walk up to somebody and say, you're going to have to really be courageous. I'd be thinking, oh my goodness. What is he about to tell me? And this is what he said. Keep your focus on God. Don't go to the right. Don't go to the left. Don't try to add to it. Don't try to take away from it. Stand firm in it, man, that's, that's, that's what we, we so desperately need in our world today. We, we live in a world like we've never seen. It's like reality has been suspended, especially by this new, I, I identify as whatever it is that I want to be. And I saw this week for the very, very first time. There is a new one out called transable people. Transable people are people who are perfectly healthy but identify as handicapped. Some of them spend their life in wheelchairs even though they can walk better than you and I. Some of them, especially in Europe, are already having doctors amputate limbs that are perfectly well, but they self-identify as transable. I identify as a person 
who is handicapped. And this one will really blow your mind. So many people who have cheered this movement on up to this point are now saying that this conflicts with reality and isn't healthy. I'm like, welcome to the party. It's incredible. But that's where we live. God didn't send his people over into Canaan to join up with some other Israelites. They were none there. He sent his people over there to be Israelites. Not to mesh with Jebusites. No. He said, I'm sending you into a place like you have never seen before. Well, I believe if we're going to cut through all the mishmash, and we need to, because if we don't, so many more of our churches are going to be just like Sardis. They're going to die from self-effort trying to make themselves righteous, or either they're going to become irrelevant because they stand for nothing that the world doesn't already stand for. So before that happens, why don't we take a look at just exactly what needs to be said? What is God's plan for a dead church? What does he say? And of course, you know, we're going right to the scriptures. He says, first of all, and there are three things. I'm going to go ahead and tell you how many today so you can clock me. The first thing he says is you need a realistic assessment. Boy, nothing better than a realistic assessment. Verse 1, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God. I know everything. I see everything. My spirit is not limited in any way whatsoever. And he's already told them in chapter 1 that I am walking among the candlesticks. I have been visiting your church. And he says, and I have the seven stars. I own the one who is the messenger. Quit trying to tell him how he ought to preach. Quit uh, uh, worrying him to death because, uh, well, he's not preaching what brother what's his name is preaching or something else he is called by God to preach the word and he belongs to him and if he doesn't belong to God and answer to him then he's not worth having he said I know your deeds you have a reputation for being alive but you were dead he said there's your realistic assessment you're dead I remember Star Trek that was a tv show for you millennials, that's back when we really had sci-fi. He's dead, Jim. Man, I can hear old Bones saying it now. He'd take that little thing. I don't know why you doctors in here now don't have you one of them. It really worked on there. He's dead, Jim. I want to tell you, this church is dead. They, they kind of followed the same route as the city. The city of Sardis at one time was known for its valuable uh, financial significance. 
It was probably, in the ancient world, the first city where coins were struck. They would just buy things with a certain weight of gold or silver, but they began to strike coins in the ancient days of this city. And they lived in a place that was physically impregnable. You just could not get up there. Uh, You can look it up online. They have some great YouTube videos about it. But it is a precipice that is just incredible. And the city was up there so high and it was so steep, no one could hardly get to them at all. So, man, I want to tell you, the city itself at one time had been awesome. But remember this, he says you, church, also have a reputation that you have it going on. But remember this, folks, reputation is always about what others think of us. Reality is about the judgment of God. That's where we have to get rid of the, well, the way I see it, or you know how I feel about it. I promise you, 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 could, you would be hard-pressed to find somebody if you asked them, how is your church? Well, how would you assess the spiritual health of your church? I want to tell you, I doubt you'd find very many people that would say, oh, our church is dead. It died years ago. We go, we got nostalgia out the ears. Oh, man, I sit on the pew every Sunday morning that my great-grandpa paid for way back in 1726 and whenever. And, 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 and we got all of that going on, but our churches did. I doubt you would ever find that. You'll hear people say things like, well, I think we have a pretty good church. I mean, we only got about 10 or 12 coming now, and, um, and, and most of them are over 110, but but. I think we've got a, got a pretty good church. We, uh, boy, this is so popular today. We have an interim, interim pastor. The interim pastor business is so big right now, and I'll tell you why. Some of these guys that I know personally that get jobs preaching, some of these retired ministers, they find that they start at a church being the interim pastor. That means you're just there to preach. Until they find a pastor. Then they can't quit the job because nobody wants them to leave. And the reason behind some of that is because a lot of these churches, all they ever wanted was somebody to stand in the pulpit and preach. We're not looking for a leader. We already know where we're going. I'll never forget one time a young pastor had put me down as a reference. I'm, this is not a story. This is true. Oh, man. Put me down as a reference and the chairman of the pulpit committee called me. Asked me a few questions. His last question, though, was, so you think we can handle him all right? I tried to tell that boy. He wouldn't listen. He'd tell you something now, though. You think we can handle him all right? Man, I want to tell you, there are a lot of churches. They are the epitome of inoffensive Christianity. You will rarely hear anything that conflicts with those who have lived around there forever. 
You won't get into many fights on Facebook or social media or anywhere else. There'll be very few arguments, and somehow or another, you'll figure out a way to justify everything that comes alone. And when that happens, I'm going to tell you something, friend. You have quit being a light in the darkness, and you have joined the darkness. Sad, but it happens. Well, he tells them, he says, I know your deeds. I I know what you say about them, but he says, I know your deeds. I know what you're doing, and I know what you are not doing. And I would say this before we move to our next point. Paul summed these kinds of churches up so well. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, he told Timothy in the last days that men will become wicked and mean and lovers of themselves and disobedient to parents. And he gave a whole long list of things there. But he says these people will have a form of religion, but they deny the power of it. Instead of telling people, hey, Christ can change your life. You, you, yo, you have this destructive behavior going on in your life, or, or you've got some sexual dysphoria, or you, 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 you are caught up in a relationship you have no business being in, or you're, you, you, you are ruining your, your fifth marriage, or, or, or whatever. Instead of telling those people that God can save you and God can change your life, that's the power of the gospel. Paul says, no, they deny that. Because it ain't about believing. It's about belonging. So you just let them come and live and die just like they are. They deny the power of the gospel. That's a realistic assessment. Secondly, a dead church needs a rude awakening. (laughs) He says in verse 2, wake up. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Wake up. Now, I will have to tell you this. They had a couple of wake-up calls. If you go back about 600 years, Cyrus the Great, after overthrowing the Babylonians, He was ruler of the Persians. He came up against Sardis in 546 B.C. And when he went there and he saw the hill that it was on and how that there was no way in the world that you could scale that bank and, and, and all of that, he stayed there with his army for days, maybe weeks. And then finally one night, one of the soldiers... Up on the wall, fell asleep, and his, his, his head tilted forward. The story says his helmet fell off. Went down the hill. And one of Cyrus's soldiers saw it. And he saw the man sneak down the hill and go back up a path. And he said, that's how they get in there. So Cyrus sends his army up, and man, they get up there, and once they get there, and they're ready to overtake the city, guess what? Nobody's there to fight them, because they're not even guarding the city. 
talking about need a wake-up call. They felt like that there's no way that anybody could ever get up here. It is completely impossible, and there's just no way that our enemies could ever be a threat to us. So no one was guarding the place, and he overtook it with hardly a fight. No one guarding. The gullible fortress, too safe. To be attacked. Just not going to happen. And if you think they learned their lesson, no. Because in about 200 years, Antiochus Epiphanes, once the Greeks overthrew the world, he was one of Alexander the Great's generals. And when Alexander the Great died, Antiochus decided he would go up against Sardis. And he was able to scale the wall with his soldiers. And once again, he found no one guarding the place. There's a thing that I have called before the Jonah syndrome. If you remember the story of Jonah, Jonah is in a boat and he's down in the bottom of it. He's trying to get away from God. That is, boy, that is that a dumb idea or what? I'm leaving. I'm going somewhere God can't find me. Mm. He said, I self-identify as a fool. He's on this boat, and there's a great storm. And these pagans that have never heard of Jonah's God are fighting it with all they got. He finally wakes up, or they wake him up, and he comes up top, and he tells them, well, I can tell you why the storm's so bad. The gods you serve are pagans, and they don't really, they do nothing. But he said, I serve the God that created this ocean. I serve the God that made this sea and made this storm, and he's after me. And I am the reason that the seas are so bad. Now, they didn't ask this question, but I'm going to assume they thought it. If you really serve the one true God, why are you asleep in the middle of this storm? If you serve a God that can change these circumstances, why are you asleep? Why aren't you praying? Why aren't you crying out to your God? We've been crying out to ours all night and they can do nothing. You say you serve the one true and living God. Why aren't you praying to him? And I wonder if our world today that is totally out of control, I wonder if it doesn't look at the church sometime and say, if you really serve a living God and you've got a personal relationship with the creator of the universe, why aren't you on your knees crying out to God? To come and change this place. Well. It just happens sometimes. We fall asleep. The next thing you know we die. He tells them. In this rude awakening. He said I have not found your deeds complete. Plurao is the word. And, and the word, it is the word for, one of the words for complete, it means not yet fulfilled. Your deeds have not yet been fulfilled. Now, the complete purpose of anything we do for God is to glorify Him. He says, you may have started a lot of things. You, you, you got 
going on this and, and you came to that for a while and, and you had this program or that program or when you first started as a church sardis, you had stuff going on nearly every night of the week. And now if you can just get half that many there on Sunday morning, you're doing good. Well, that hurts. But church, he says, we need to wake up. We never, we need to wake up. Hebrews, in chapter 5, verse 11 says, the writer of Hebrews says, we have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though this time you ought to be teachers. Instead of being taught, instead of coming to classes, instead of wondering when Preacher Mike's going to do a study on such and such, why aren't you doing a study on such and such? I mean, I'm not asking that. I would never be that blind. The, the writer of Hebrews is. So you ought to be teaching by now. But, but, but you're not. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk. You're choking to death on the solid food. And anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. That's why when I stand in this same pulpit right here and I say, how many here are 100% righteous because you have put your faith and trust in God? Oh, yeah. We still have some that are like, I don't know about that. Why don't you know about that? We have preached it into the dirt. You ought to be teaching others about it. Are you telling people at work you're 100% righteous? And when they give you that old snarl, well, that's the opportunity right there for you to look at them and tell them, but let me tell you how I got that way. It's not about me. It's all about him. All about him. Verse 14, but solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to do what? To distinguish good from evil. That's why. That's why. I'm still having to have arguments with people about God's design for marriage, humanity, sexuality, whether or not they should be in church, involved in his body, etc. Because they've not matured to the point yet, a lot of them, to know the difference between what is good and what is evil. And if you don't know that, then you go by how you feel and how you see it. Last of all, Need a realistic assessment, a rude awakening, and a repentant attitude. A repentant attitude. Verse 3. Three imperatives. Remember. That's a command. Therefore, what you have received and heard, obey it. And repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come to you like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. He says, remember, you know, sometimes we say things like, well, I don't like going back to my past and talk about all of that. And I know some people do kind of take their past and brag about it. It's almost like they're proud of it. 
But I will tell you this. The Apostle Paul went back and talked about his. He talked about when he was on the road to Damascus. He talked about when he was persecuting Christians. He talked about how messed up his head was, how he was thinking totally backwards from the way that God wanted him to think. He talks about God blinding him and calling him and all of that. And so we ought to, first of all, remember where God brought you from. It's amazing to me how people come to church and their life is a mess and and you love them and care about them and hold nothing against them. Tell them this is God is, boy, he loves you and and he can rescue and save you from all of that. But at some certain point down the road, it's amazing how they become theologians and all of a sudden they, well, I don't know that our church is really doing what it needs to be done. Like, wow, it took me 43 years to learn what little bit I know. You are, you're a quick learner. You're already passing judgment on the very people that accepted you when you were at your worst. You need to remember where you came from and how God loved you and cared about you. And, and, and also remember that's where we came from too. And cut us some slack and give us some grace and let's forgive each other and just fall on our faces ashamed before God together. Why don't we do that? Remember. What you've received and heard, and he said, obey it. He said, I, 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 I didn't say analyze it, pass opinion on it, update it, uh, uh, form it to the culture. He says, but if you do not wake up, I will come to you like a thief. I don't know if you've ever had a divine, invita- uh, uh, a divine visitation. He says, I'll come like a thief. And this word is kleptos. It's not the word for robber. So this is the kind of thief other than different than the ones hanging beside Jesus on the cross. A kleptos is someone that you come home one day and they have come and gone. And everything valuable they took with them. Oh, you go through the house carefully. If you still own the Glock, but you don't, has this gone? Ah, <laughs> oh, you're up and down the halls. You realize they've been gone for two days. We were on vacation, maybe. They've not been here in hours. And you get that eerie feeling. And, 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 and I can just tell you, I've been robbed before, and sometimes I've been robbed of a couple things. I didn't even know I was robbed of them for months because I wasn't even missing them. And then I got to going around and looking and thinking, man, I wonder what else is is going around here. It's an eerie feeling. You know, I shared this with the men Wednesday night. I think sometimes not only do we get a visitation from God that we desperately need, sometimes we get a visitation from the devil that we are not expecting. And all of a sudden you come home one day, man, and you realize your marriage has left the house. You didn't see that one coming. 
You realize one day, out of the blue, that your kids have zero respect for you. You tried so hard to be their friend. They had plenty of them. What they needed was a parent. But you had such emotional deficits in your own life. Instead of your kids growing up and being proud of you, you worried yourself to death. (laughs) You worried yourself to death telling them how proud of them you were because you needed that reciprocation. And I think it's great to tell our kids that we are proud of them. But if you have emotional deficits in your life and, and you need someone to love you to help you get through it, let me tell you, buy a dog, don't have a child. You need a puppy. You don't need a human being. Don't prostitute your children to make up for the emotional and spiritual deficits in your life. I didn't write this. I I, I think it's amazing. When Samson lost his power, you know what he said? He said, I will go out as I do have at other times and I'll shake myself. Now, usually when he did that, Philistines went flying like they'd been hit with a bush hawk. He shook himself that day with his new haircut, and nothing happened. And it says in Judges that he knew not that his strength was gone. It was gone. He didn't know what all he had lost. He lost his strength. He lost respect. He lost his ministry. And finally, he lost his life. He lost everything. Boy, I I know that's strong. And I, I... I don't want to close on that note, so let's close on a better one. He says, but you do have some in verse 4 who have not soiled their clothes. They walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. Men, I bet every one of you have been here. You ever had your wife to come in there with one of your shirts or a pair of pants and go, what in the world have you been doing? Now, my wife does that when there's nothing on my clothes. She's like, you must not be wearing clothes because I get stuff on me all the time. I mean to tell you, friend, I can change battery in my cell phone and have black grease all over me. It's just incredible. You, you, you get your clothes dirty when you get some on you of what is around you. Okay? And so when he talks about here, some have not soiled their clothes. They've not gotten the world on them. See, we, we, we have this thinking now in the more progressive church movement that we got to get out there and get in the middle of that thick black grease and, and that dirt and that sludge and get some of it on us, and that's how we're going to win those people. And that is not how it works. It's never going to be how it works. But I want you to notice this as we close today. He says, 
They will walk with me, verse 4, dressed in white for they, they're what? They're worthy. I thought we preached last Sunday that there wasn't but one who was worthy, and that was Jesus. And he said, no, but these people are worthy to walk with me. And how is that? Well, if you go to Revelation chapter 7, it says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Hallelujah. In the blood of the Lamb. That's how. That's the only way. Man, that's our only hope. I hope you never, ever, and I know I mess this up a lot, but I hope you never, ever leave after a sermon that I've preached and feel like, man, i got to try harder. Whew. Boy, that hit me hard today. I hate that old thing about stepping on toes. I mean, a stepped on toe is not a real serious injury. I mean, believe you me, I've had worse. I... I I don't want you to leave feeling beat up. I think sometimes people like leaving beat up, though, because that makes them feel like, oh, I paid for my sins, boy. I tell you, he got me today. Woo-hoo. And you just go back and keep doing the same thing. Come back next Sunday, get you spanking. I just wear that bottom out, and you'll feel better. Mm, it changed a bit. That's never what this is about. I hope we leave after a sermon like today. And go, man, I need to trust him more. I need to wake up. I need a realistic assessment in my life. I really do. I need a rude awakening. Or maybe you're sitting here today and you're going, no, I've had one. I've been trying to figure out what to do all week, Pastor. I've had a rude awakening. I came home and it wasn't the same anymore. Maybe... What you need today is a repentant attitude. Maybe you're tired of fighting and you're ready to say, God, I can't do this without you. I need you so badly, God. I need you so badly, God. I love my wife. I love my husband. I love my children. I care about them, but I've been asleep at the wheel Men, I especially say this to you. I remember reading a book years ago by a pastor who wrote about the home and the role of the husband. It was such a great illustration. They had been in a terrible car accident. You know why? Because he was driving and he fell asleep. And when he woke up, his wife was driving, but she wasn't sitting behind the wheel. She was driving from over here. And they hit a guardrail and tore up all kinds of things that nearly killed them, but they survived it. But he, he said, God spoke to me with that. That sometimes I've got my wife trying to drive from a position from which she can't drive. God put me behind this wheel and I need to be in control of this car. But he said, no, I was sound asleep. Man, maybe you'd Say today, God, listen, 
I can say all I want to. I got a reputation for being the spiritual leader of my home. But if it wasn't for my wife and her love for you, I don't know where we'd be. I know. I know. Man, let's pray together. Every head bowed. Every eye closed. God, I pray for every heart in here today. I pray, Lord, we'd stop fighting. That we would stop trying to maybe re-rig what you tell us so it can suit our lives. God, we do live in a different place. These people don't act like you tell us that we are to act. And God, sometimes we try to compromise. God, we try to be an Israelite and a Canaanite. We feel good about ourselves from doing it, Lord. We love being light. We love being loved, God. But I pray you'd help us to know it's selfish and sinful, God. And the day will come, Lord, when we'll die spiritually doing it. I pray you'd help us, not only as a church, but as individuals. I pray, God, for that dad today that, Lord, he needs a wake-up call. Or maybe he's had that, but he's a repentant heart. Maybe he knows, Lord, and maybe help him, God, to know there's nobody this time to blame. I pray for that mother, that wife, that teenager, God, whoever it might be, Lord, that in other areas of life they're wide open, but spiritually. They're asleep. God, I pray you'd forgive us, husbands. Forgive us, God, for expecting our wife to control our families from a position, Lord, that's impossible. I pray, God, that you'll help us to not control our families, but lead them and guide them. And be an example to them, Lord. And let us be the heads of our home the way you were the head of the church, God. Let us out-serve, out-sacrifice everybody there, God. We're going to need your help, Lord. We're going to need your help. So we stand here today with our filthy garments. And we ask you, Lord, wash them in the blood of the Lamb. Wash them, God. Cleanse us from where we failed you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at servantsway.com or email us at office at servantsway.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.